You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Harold. How you doing? I'm doing great, Glenn. It's good to talk to you, and uh, you look great. And uh, you look uh, pretty good yourself. We are old friends. I should introduce us. Uh, we're we're having a conversation here. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show, BloggingHeads.tv. I'm talking to Harold. Pollock, who's a Helen Ross professor at the School of Social Service Administration, University of Chicago, and someone I've known for, God, Harold, my goodness, 35 years or something crazy like that. Not quite, but 30, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's over 30. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, yeah, we're old friends. We're at the Glenn Show, um, and uh, we're in the uh, midst of the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, yeah, we uh, and we're just talking. So thanks for giving me some time here. Harold. No uh, we were talking about the market just now, and you're an expert with the index card book and everything. Does everybody know about the book? Well, uh, I I did this. Uh, uh, Helene Owen and I wrote this book uh, called The Index Card, uh, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And uh, it basically, uh, uh, I did on the spur of the moment, uh, quite a while, several years ago now, I just wrote down 10 investing principles on a little index card and took a picture with my iPhone and posted it on the web and it got like 400,000 hits. And it was all wow. stuff that was, and one of the funny things, everything that I wrote, this, this would be a long story, which I won't tell you now, but basically I had a personal financial challenge because my wife and I had to take care of her brother when he moved into our home and he was disabled. And I was really worried about money and I became obsessed with personal finance and I wrote down a bunch of obvious things on this index card uh, that were things that I learned. And it ended up, it, that card won Money Magazine's, uh, one of their best new ideas of the year. And I remember my colleagues in the business school were just like, you're kidding. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, I, I think there's a lesson in there about expertise. <laughs> so you did something that was common sense, not like you don't have any expertise, but you're not really, really an expert. No. But you have you have good sense, and you wrote the maxims. You said, "Let's ten maxims." You wrote them down, and you took a photo with your phone. Yeah. So then, social media steps in, and now everybody knows about the photo. And I assume a, a publisher somewhere says, "Hey, this is a small book, man. You better get it written quickly." And I and you did do that. Yes, I uh, did. And the people who spend their entire lives uh, pondering the you know uh, the complexities of finance are watching you go to the bank. I assume you did go to the bank. <laughs> well, I must say that I'm watching them going to the bank now, I suspect, because uh, I, I, like many other people, I, you know, I'm, I'm of the school, you buy boring index funds, you don't try to time the market, and right. you ride things out. And, um, you know, and it is quite something to be on that downward roller coaster ride. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I, you know, taking a hit like everybody else. And I must say that it's a moment for perspective also because, um, you know, that's a first world problem. And, uh, you know, I have a steady job. Uh, I'm not yeah. one of people, I'm not a, I'm not a waiter in a restaurant or a convention worker, an Uber driver. Um, and, you know, I actually think in the long run, it may be a good thing. Not that we go into a deep recession, but that the market tanks when there's a public health emergency, because in the long run, it may actually reinforce a sense of social solidarity that, you know, I lived through, as you did as well, uh, you know, the HIV epidemic, the crack epidemic, and the society really did demonstrate a tenuous commitment 
towards the people that had the most at risk in those crises. That is quite different, for example, from what we see with the opioid epidemic today, where there really is a sense that that we're all at risk in a different way. And it mattered. And, uh, you know, I think that after COVID-19, when we, however this is resolved, I think that we may take public health more seriously and that we're going to face worse than what we're facing right now with climate change and other challenges that we have. And we've got to be ready because uh, we we're seeing right now, this, this is a pretty catastrophic set of outcomes and uh, this is not the worst that it could be by any stretch. Yeah, well, you've said a mouthful there. Uh, the market plunge, social solidarity, public health infrastructure, uh, no shared suffering. That. Yeah. Uh, where to begin? Uh, trillions of dollars of wealth have vanished in the thin air. Okay, so does that sentence make any sense whatsoever? In the sense that what do we mean by wealth? Okay, so it's subjective valuation prices of what they are on any given day. Yeah. Underneath these fluctuating prices are real things which are being affected, but are being affected in subtle, uh, sort of slow moving ways, not ways that flip up and down the way the market is flipping up and down. So that wealth has an ephemeral quality to it. It's not really disappearing if, like you uh, and I, a person waits it out and things come back and then it's there and it was gone and it was back and whatever, just like I didn't feel enriched by the markets run up during uh, this last three years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't feel like, you know, suddenly there was just more wealth. Yeah. Uh, I did see my, uh, the accounts go up, but it's all kind of ephemeral. So, so there's that. So there's lost, there's the real economy. There's less production of goods and services. The, uh, you know, there, there is, I mean, there's definitely real things happening and there's an assessment there were fixed costs put down that now turn out to have not paid off. Uh, it is a very interesting question. Where did the wealth go? You know, when, whenever a bubble burst, people say, hey, where did all the money go? And, and the answer is, it, you know, there's a hole in the ground someplace for an investment that we now realize is unproductive. Or there was food purchased for a restaurant that now can't be used. And there's labor that, that was available to provide services that people valued and needed, which now cannot be deployed. Uh, and that's where the wealth is. Uh, uh, that's where the disappearance is. You know, it's, it's not in a, it's not in a bank vault in Switzerland someplace, uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's a more abstract quality to it. Well, one of the things I, I've been thinking lately is, okay, uh, market valuations are fluctuating, but the real economy is taking a hit. So yeah. whatever the steady state level of economic uh, income wealth was going to be, it's going to, when it gets back to normal, the normal is going to be lower than it otherwise would have been, yep. precisely because of the losses that you're identifying. You know, food going bad in a restaurant is the least of it. People getting separated from their employment where they have specific human capital, they've got skills that have been developed in place. Yeah. And now it has to all be reorganized and financial risk, right? I mean, people having indebtedness that they can't pay and dominoes tipping over because my, uh, you know, a debtor can't pay me. I can't pay the guy I owe money to kind of thing like that. I guess the Fed is supposed to be trying to minimize that. And we're in this comp. I mean, so also a reminder that we are in this incredibly complex ecosystem. You know, there's no one, there's no one who understands the U.S. economy. You know, there, there is a fundamental truth, uh, you know, that goes back to the 
classic debates, you know, among Hayek and others that, that, uh, that the, the complexity of the economy is literally unfathomable. We don't understand. There's a, there are things that you didn't mention now that are going to turn out to be crucial that we just didn't understand were crucial until they were broken. And, uh, and it does, I, I have no question in my mind that if we go an extended period of a shelter in place, that we will discover that there are these critical economic linkages that just are way more important than we realized in the same way that, that a decade ago when remember, I remember being kind of quietly satisfied when Lehman brothers went bankrupt, that this was a company that had behaved irresponsibly. They, they resisted efforts at a sort of reasonable bailout and then they went bankrupt. And I remember thinking, you know, that's kind of good, you know, and it'll send a good. And then it turned out that it was just a more fundamental puzzle piece than people fully understood in the complicated ecosystem of the financial system. And it caused tremendous harm, you know, when it went bankrupt. And no doubt in my mind that we are going to learn a lot about uh, mundane but crucial things that we are damaging in the economy. We'll also, we'll also learn in the health side there will be a lot of deaths that will occur because of the disruption. There will be surgeries delayed that will turn out to have been more important than, than was understood. There will be, there's people having mental health challenges because they're lonely and isolated and frightened. Uh, you know, there's no question that we are, we don't know fully, uh, you know, what we're getting into. And on the flip side, of course, uh, you know, we don't know how deadly this COVID-19 will turn out to be. So, and we'll have to be able to forgive ourselves a year from now as we start to learn ex post about some very serious mistakes that we all made from an ex post perspective that at a human level, people had to go on the best that we have right now. Uh, let me, let me just stop you for a minute. You're saying so many interesting things, but this last one, I don't want to be, I don't want to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the, there's a tremendous stake in us having some forbearance and being kind of, I don't know, gentle with each other in yeah. post-mortem, okay? Because the incentives are all wrong, if not. If, 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 if given all the uncertainty, we put decision makers, and this is no brief for President Trump or any politician, yeah. in the position of, we're going to cut your head off if something goes wrong, now they have to make decisions. That's going to force them uh, into a, a kind of crouching posture where they're under, afraid to experiment and do things because of this ex post facto thing. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, for example, the debate about how much cost to impose on ourselves in the interest of stymieing the public health thing. That's mm-hmm. a huge, big argument. As far as I can tell, it's an argument. I'm not sure anybody really knows the answer to the question of is this or that. You know, the governor of Massachusetts, as you may know, Charlie Baker today uh, uh, ordered non-essential businesses to close, but did not order people to shelter in place. He said there's an advisory, but there's not an order. And he's being second guessed about that. And I understand that. I mean, I but but uh, ex post facto, we're we're going to learn that some of the things that people were saying I, on our sides of the argument are uh, proven to be wrong. And um, if we go after each other, uh, you know, I I told you, I told you, I told you, that kind of recrimination, um, it it not only is it uh, unproductive, uh, not a constructive thing to be doing with our time in a time of crisis, 
but it also, the threat of it makes people, uh, you know, overly cautious. And I think it contributes to herd behavior. By herd behavior, what I mean is once it becomes abroad in the land that a certain action is being taken, I can't be the person who doesn't take that action because either the action has no value, in which case it will never be heard about again, or the action was actually essential and I didn't take it, in which case I will be destroyed. I'll be ruined. And, and we don't want that. By the way, this reminds me one of when I took a class from you 30 years ago and we read there's a beautiful paper with Banerjee on. I think it may be called Herd on the Street or that may be a – it was on the economics of herding. I think Herd on the Street yeah. another paper. That was basically – Abhijit, the Nobel laureate Abhijit Banerjee, before he became yes. a development economist. Yeah, this is be- brilliant work that had nothing to do with uh, why he won the Nobel, although, you know, it was sort of – or was was not his most prominent work in the current context. The um, – yeah, you don't want to be alone and wrong. And that does discourage, uh, experimentation and you know, it encourages social conformity. Uh, and that is, uh, there's somebody who's got a creative idea now that will turn out to have been visionary. Uh, I do think, by the way, there's things, if you say, how do we, how do we act on the insight that you were just making? I, I do think that part of it is to think about uh, how can we buffer, how can we maintain our optionality knowing that we might be wrong about certain things? So we want to maintain flexibility so that, you know, if, 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 if a month from now we have good reason to think that we've overreacted and we really have high confidence in that, we want to make sure that we are ready to make some decisions, you know, to do some things that, that act on that. Uh, and also how can we buffer to minimize the damage? You know, people, people are home, uh, I think one of the things I'd like to see President Trump and Joe Biden doing is saying, okay, we're taking a sledgehammer to our culture, society, religious institutions right now to, to protect each other. Um, whether it's the right thing to shelter in place or not, how do we do shelter in place so that we can address the predictable harms? You know, every American, you, know, you Glenn Lowry, who are the people in your life that you could call right now and just say, Hey, you know, I was thinking about you. Uh, you know, I know that you're uh, a little older or you have a yeah. health problem. And I'm sure that, and I just wanted you to know that I was thinking about you and can I yeah. send you a Starbucks gift card for a $10 coffee through the drive through that would make you feel, uh, cause I was just thinking about you as my friend, you know, if a billion, if a billion of those things happen, because national leaders are saying, let's make sure that we are that we have each other's backs psychically and, uh, and you know, providing that emotional support. It would make a big difference. And we know that's the right thing to do, even if it turns out whether or not shelter in place is a wise policy or not. Uh, you know, nothing you have not expended any uh, precious social resources to make that call and send that little gift card. And uh and I think they need to think of ways to call on us, not only to protect each other from infection, but also to protect each other from social isolation and loneliness and depression. And, um, and, to, and to think about how social insurance can help with that. People are afraid about their livelihoods and so on. This is a moment where that solidarity has to actually be executed, made real in big and small ways so that, uh, so that we all know that we're here for each other. Uh, in this difficult moment. Do you think that uh, what that uh, wonderful sentiment that you just expressed uh, so eloquently can over override 
or survive in the face of the uh, sort of vicious uh, divisions that we are confronted with, political divisions at this time. I really worry about it a lot. Uh, We're being tested. You know, I mean, all the time while I was watching impeachment and I was watching Trump doing his thing and I was reading, you know, the editorials and everybody's vituperating. And I even tuned to Fox News from time to time to try to see what these crazy people are saying. And and uh, I was thinking, God, I hope we don't end up having a war or something where, you know, we really have to pull together because for crying out loud, I don't know how we're going to do it. And here we are now. And I and again, there's no brief for any particular administration. I just worry you know, how we're going to get through this. Uh, the temptations to uh, demagoguery here uh, on all sides are very great, uh, you know, kind of finger pointing and stuff like that. And and by the way, you don't want to suspend accountability. I mean, for example, if the federal government is messing up and not doing what they need to do, you do want to be able to criticize them uh, in the interest of just getting the, getting the right policies. But mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Are we going to be able to weather this? The red and blue, you know, suppose somebody says national. This is why I was just arguing with a friend the other day. Uh, the friend was saying national uh, shutdown. I was saying the regions are different. And what's going to happen is you're going to get local resistance to the national order and you're going to end up with conflict. You know, uh, and and I, maybe national shutdown is the right thing to do, but there's an argument for decentralization just in, in, in the interest of avoiding uh, this uh, sense of comment. So I, you know, I don't even really know how to think about this. Uh, yeah, that's a complicated question, and it's made more complicated because there really is an urgency to removing President Trump from office that is a real thing that's independent of, of this current public health emergency, but that obviously is affected. I mean, it is, you know, the guy is a menace, and uh, and it is – a national tragedy that he is president in a distinctive way that that's just that's just a reality. I okay, don't, now, I, I don't necessarily should have you at least not just saying. Excuse me for interrupting. I, I just want to say there's 45 percent or so of the American public that doesn't share that view, and that's the point that I'm trying to focus oh, on. I I, I I understand that, but uh, but okay. I, I would say I would say as someone who holds the view that I just expressed, yes, sir. very very comfortably holds that view. I still, I do think that there is a real weight in what you said as well. Now, part of it is I do think that the accountability is going to be there. And, you know, the reality is whatever, uh, uh, whatever President Trump does and whatever happens with this epidemic, uh, it's going to be there for all to see. And, and attacking the president, oh, he's done a horrible job. But the fact is that the the best thing politically, morally, strategically is for Biden and other leaders to say, okay, here's the situation. Here's how we can be helpful. And uh, there will be a time to hold the president accountable for the mistakes that he made, uh, you know, in the months leading up to that. Uh, here's what we think. Here's, here's what we can do now. And, and I think that, uh, there's no, you know, look at someone like Andrew Cuomo, you know, he seems to be building a relationship with the president. Not like anybody thinks he admires the president. He doesn't. Uh, but he's saying, you know, we're in an emergency. Well, he How needs the president. Here? Excuse yeah. me again for interrupting. I mean, you know, he needs the president. Sure. Whoever that person happens to be, this is a functional structural thing. It's not about personality. So, I mean, I think you could, you can be honest about the president's faults and so on without, 
without saying this is a moment for our peak negative ads and things like that. You know, you, uh, you said, well, here's what I want from the president. If I want the president to help me get respirators in my hospitals. I want him to help him do X, Y, Z. Yeah. The fact is if President Trump can do that, he will deserve credit for those yeah. things that he accomplishes. Yeah. Uh, if he can't do that, he deserves accountability for that. And that's yeah. going to matter a hell of a lot more than my ad that, that says something about him. You know, you know, this is a show don't tell moment. I think. Oh, that's such a deep point. I, I, I think that's absolutely hundred percent right. Both performance uh, in terms of uh, management, but also in terms of public presentation. He has these press conferences, and he can't hide. We're looking right at him. All the ticks, all the warts, all of the uh, things that I'm sure you despise in terms of his narcissism and his, uh, you know. It's all there. I mean, he can't, if somebody can't hold it back, a reporter asks him a nasty question and he responds by saying, you're a nasty person to yeah, the reporter. It wasn't even a nasty question. The reporter asked him a softball question. He said, what do you, what do you have to say to all the people who are frightened today? Can you imagine if he asked Bill Clinton that question? Oh, and I, what I have to say is that you're a terrible reporter. So I'm like, I just assumed that there had been some prelude to that along the lines of, uh, are your hotels going to profit from uh, the the uh, bailout package that you're giving or something I mean, like that? It was, it was actually, one of the ironies is it was, he responded, he often, when he goes off on these reporters, they often have not actually asked him a very hostile question. So it's somebody else that he's responding to. Or he's just, he just doesn't, you know, it's just his narcissist, his malignant narcissism. But, but, anyway, but, it's all there for everybody to see, can't be hidden. And Gavin Newsom, if he gets what he wants from the federal administration, he's going to say, great job, job well done. If he doesn't get it, he's going to say, where's the ventilators? It's time to get off the off the dime. And get well, the, the person who's going to say, where's the ventilators, is the widow of the person who died because there was no ventilator. And that's the accountability. And, I mean, we are, we are going to be in a world, if in fact we have a catastrophic logistical failure, we will be in a world where hundreds of thousands of Americans are very intimately and powerfully harmed or killed. And their uh, loved ones and everybody else, and they, they're being triaged and they can't get what they need. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just saw an NBER working paper that came out, I think it may have come out today or the day before yesterday, where they simulated out the effect of some of these policies. And, you know, the paper is very rough, basically said you're going to plunge the economy in a deep recession, but, but there will be 600,000 fewer deaths than if you don't. And I'm sure that paper is wrong in any number, you know, obviously by definition, that paper is going to be wrong about all kinds of assumptions in the modeling of it. But that gives you a sense of the stakes, both that they were like the, the economic well, is going to be horrible and the number of deaths that could occur is also horrible. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, you're uh, an expert on public health. You're also a student of public policy and public policy analysis. And it just strikes mm-hmm. me there's a couple of things here. I mean, one is supposing the trade-off is right, six hundred thousand deaths or a deep global uh, recession. Which would you choose? Okay, I don't take that to be necessarily an easy question. Depends on how deep and how long the recession is. <laughs> well, and also, and also the other health harms. Of course, death is only one of the health harms that we're worried about. But, but what I just said, I'm sure, is controversial. I'm sure many people would be appalled at the idea that you could put any price tag on six hundred thousand lives. Oh my God, how do you do it? I mean, it's a global population of seven billion people. Okay, so. Just to keep that. This is by the United States, 600,000 deaths. In okay, well, within the United States, that's a pretty big hit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's. Well, a, you know, yeah. we, have a, we have a whole discipline and cost utility analysis 
that answers that 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 seeks to address those questions. There's a lot of there's yeah. a, a lot of and and I will tell you that just the typical valuations that are used in occupational safety and so on would be something like between six and twelve million dollars per life saved. So if you take that and multiply it by by you know six hundred thousand, you're getting numbers that are like you know seven trillion dollars, something like which that. which is one third of uh, annual GDP in this country. Um, half, yeah, yeah, somewhere a little bit, little bit more than a third, yeah. maybe a little more than a third, but we're close to twenty trillion. So a third of a year's income, or six hundred thousand people. That's um, you know. It's it's um, okay. So let's say that's not a close call, and we go with the six hundred thousand people. No, how about, I, I, how I, about I, a year's I, income? Okay. How about two years' income? So there's a there's a number such that you're gonna you're gonna flip the uh, decision in favor of the money over the people if you were to put it in such stark terms. Well, or I, is I, there? I would, or is there? Well, I, I would say what it points to is the need to. If we do need a national showdown, how do we do it? so that the human consequences can be minimized. Because if you have a deep recession and you have very powerful social insurance programs that protect vulnerable people, that help us ride it out, and you say, well, there's a period of time where we have greatly reduced economic output, but we have provided for the essential needs of everybody, and and people do not have to be frightened that they will lose all you know, that they will not be able to retire safely and so on. That to me is a, that's a world where we can say we are protecting each other enough so that we can take a big hit to save a lot of lives, knowing that we are not destroying the most valuable aspects of what our economy needs to do for people. So, you know, I think that, because I, I think it depends a lot on where that money, how we're dealing with that economic hit. Okay, I, I accept that as a friendly amendment to my my uh, general question. The amendment being, we want to take distributional uh, as well as level effects into account when we talk about the income hit. But I'm back to square one, which is how do you decide if it's X and Y, X number of lives, Y dollars, where where uh, the social preference should be? And the, the question I want to raise is. Is that a democratic decision or is it a decision that should be delegated to expertise? What's the role of expertise in making these kinds of fundamental evaluations? Certainly we need expertise just in order to know what the trade-off is. But it's not at all obvious that experts are the people who should decide how to take one side or the other of the trade-off. Certainly that's right. And I think as, as Larry Summers said Quoted, I, I forget who he was quoting, but at the at the Zeckhauser event that you and I went to uh, yeah. some time ago, that you want experts to be on tap, not on top. And, oh, I don't remember that one, and that's a good one. And, that's exactly what I mean here. Uh, it is, um, yeah. I think there is a role for democratic decision making, and even when democratic decision making can be can be mistaken uh, or can just be. Done and it has values that differ from my own. Uh, but I, I do think that after, I think COVID-19 will be, I think there'll be big changes in American life that come out of this. And one of them will be about social insurance and risk, risk sharing uh, as we think about what works and doesn't work uh, as we, as we 
go through this? And what, how much money do we want to spend to provide surge capacity in our health system in case we have another epidemic is another complicated cost-benefit trade-off. You know, you can keep – it's expensive to keep some of that capacity around. Uh, but, boy, you know, it would be nice if we had more hospital beds in New York City today. Uh, how much should we pay to have a lot of unused capacity? And what's the way to do that that is – that is, you know, sensible from an economic perspective. Uh, how do we make sure that uh, public health is properly financed? Because there is a public good aspect to it, and it's so neglected in American um, public policy on both by both right and the left. If you think about what a lot of people are saying on the left, the big most people's passion is around universal coverage. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of really boring, you know, how many people are thinking about the supply chain for ventilators? You know, imagine if we spent the last 10 years arguing about our public health capacity with the same passion that we have about the ACA. We'd be in better position right now to deal with some aspects of this crisis. Right? And I gather that we were warned uh, by uh, by uh, epidemic disease specialists that we should be laying in stockpiles of uh, essential stuff. Yeah. And, you know, those warnings went unheeded. Yeah, having this is and this is President Trump. That is his greatest element of accountability is is the lost. I wish we had a time machine that that nobody gives you because uh, he he was getting warnings that he responded to very poorly. I'm yeah, sorry, I digress. Now your mention of the AIDS epidemic and the uh, and the crack epidemic, uh, mm-hmm. I found to be very interesting. Uh, you had a piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think the last sentences of which is something like maybe a serious market plunge can save us from ourselves. I said, well, hero, uh, going poetic on me. Come on. You're really going to make, uh, you know, you're going to make uh, something good out of this market fall. But in any case, um, you mentioned HIV and, uh, and uh, uh, the crack epidemic and that that's interesting. I mean, people would say, I know a lot of people did say, especially about crack, <laughs> and you're talking to somebody who has a personal relationship going back 35 years with crack, but people would say, hey, that's a behavioral thing, and, you know, I didn't do it. That's why it's not affected me. I mean, you know, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the crack addict, but just so much because mm-hmm. the crack addict is uh, responsible for their own behavior. Whereas uh, they will say about a virus, nobody is responsible for it. What do you, what do you say about that? Well, you know, that, I mean, that's a whole, there's a lot, there's a lot in that. Uh, you know, Rand Paul went and took a um, coronavirus test and then went to uh, the Senate gym and worked out and swam in the pool um, while he was waiting for his results. And he came back positive, I hear. And he came back positive. That's what my wife told me this morning. I did not know, however, that he had swum in the pool and worked out in the gym between the test and that's getting my, the results of the that's test. That's my understanding of it. Now, by the way, I should say that I wish for him a speedy recovery. Yeah, of course. People were, people were sort of saying things about it's karma, whatever, on Twitter. And I think that level of discourse is to be deeply, deeply discouraged. That's just what we were saying a moment ago. Um, I mean, you know, the, you know, you know, the, there's a there's a passage I think it's Ezekiel thirty three eleven I know you I know you turn to me for those uh, for, <laughs> uh, which basically uh, you know we 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 do not wish uh, we do not wish misfortunes on the wicked or any we we never we do not wish another's misfortunes and uh, uh, and uh, you know that that is 
I think we, I think that there is an underlying vindictiveness uh, that, that we have to be very careful of. Uh, and, you know, I was thinking of, you know, the, I was thinking of Camus, the plague uh, and uh, which is a profound work and, uh, and, and how, how people have dealt with the recrimination that comes out of a tremendous catastrophe uh, and, uh, and or tremendous wrong. And it always struck me as interesting that people like Václav Havel, uh, many of those, not all, but many were the first to have a somewhat humane reaction towards people who had not behaved optimally under the previous regime and we're ready with a sense of empathy and compassion that people compromise themselves in a really difficult situation or just fail to act optimally. Now, but I think on the crack and HIV thing, uh, it is, there's a sense of psychological distance that people had towards the people that were most at risk. You know, we all do things in our lives. I send my kids to daycare. Suppose there's some epidemic that came out that, that is spread among among, uh, you know, toddlers in daycare, we wouldn't, our first reaction wouldn't be, uh, these people, like what kind of weird people are that they send their kids to daycare? These are, they're people like us. Uh, people did not have that reaction to men who have sex with men who did a lot of things that were, that turned out to be tragically, uh, made them tragically vulnerable to HIV, but we're not, we're very human and we're not particularly, reckless or ridiculous compared to other behaviors that a lot of us do all the time that just didn't happen to have a lethal component. Excuse me, just let me interject something. This is one of those things where you don't want to go back and, you know, remember the bathhouse debate or do you? You remember the debate, okay? And there were people who were saying, come on, uh, you're not going to repress my sexuality and I'm going to go and express myself at the bathhouse and whatnot and whatnot. And that was a disaster, man. I mean, in retrospect, that was just like the worst thing that somebody could have been choosing to do. Yeah. Uh, but but you don't want to run around wagging your finger and say, see, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so, unprotected anal sex, you're going to get the disease. I told you so, you deserve your fate. You don't want to do that. Well, there's people right now, I think we have to be able to do, we have to have a way of saying we're all part of the same community. I think of you as a person as valuable as me, as smart as me, and as worthy as me. Uh, and I really want you to stay home right now so that you, you're a young and healthy person. And I want you to be putting yourself in a position where you're going to infect other people. And I'm doing the same thing myself. And, you know, I would much rather be in my office at the university of Chicago, uh, than sitting at home with the dog and the kids and everything that, you know, and have all my, my equipment to do my work. Uh, but I'm sitting at home cause that's really what's going to keep us all safe. And, when it's a conversation among people like us, it's a different conversation when it's me telling people like you. And we really, and that's what worries me, by the way, about the polarization thing, because there's going to be more conversations that will seem like they are talking across a divide. Uh, if we had community-based public health in the early days of HIV, we could have found a way to more quickly close those bathhouses in a culturally competent way that had legitimacy in the gay community in a way that was very, very difficult in that moment. If we, uh, you know, if we say now, you know, Hey, I'm in your community. I am a gay man. I've had unprotected sex with other men or whatever. And right now we got this thing. We got to change what we're doing right now. Yeah. Uh, that's a different message from the yeah. outsider who's never talked to you before, who now says, by the way, I want to 
So anyway. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, but uh, let, let me ask you a different kind of question, man. Yeah. So we're in this regime now. Mm-hmm. How do we get out? Uh, you know, how does it ever stop? What what would be the sequence of events that would allow this uh, extraordinary emergency to be perceived mm-hmm. as winding down? That's a great question, and one that requires more expertise than I have to give a satisfactory answer. I would say there's a few things. One is, I think at the moment, we really do have to uh, take a a very risk-averse approach and really shut things down for the short term. And then think about, I guess one question is, how do we get reliable and epidemiological surveillance data that would allow us to know what's happening to the epidemic curve? So that means testing uh, more widely uh, to know the extent of the uh, virus in the population and, and to be and, and able testing, to accurately assess mortality rates and things like that. And testing more systematically, because if you're testing on the basis of symptomatic cases or yeah. people who come to your attention, uh, you know, that's a paper straight for the Journal of Selection Bias. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, so we have to think about a very credible scientific way to get reliable epidemiological stuff. We have to, we have to learn more about the biology of this. We do have an advantage that China and other places had a head start and have developed. Uh, well, they you know, sequenced the uh, genome of the, of the virus. Now I must say one of the frustrating things is you forget about China. You look at South Korea and you look at the competence and the scope of their reacting to this thing. And it is so much more impressive than what we've been able to do. And, uh, you know, why is it that they were somehow able to execute, uh, you know, such broad testing so quickly, so effectively, and we have not, we, we're spending, it's so frustrating to me. We've been spending, we spent $3.6 trillion on American healthcare. That is just per cap on a per capita basis. We are so far ahead of every other wealthy democracy and our public health system yeah. is, is nowhere near that. And let, you know, let me, that? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just, I'll just give you, you know, a, a, uh, an example. So, you know, Veronica, my wife, she, she did a uh, – she's done two field placements. She's a medical social worker. And she's now at the big children's hospital in Chicago, Lurie Children's, which used to be, you know, Northwest, Northwestern Children's Hospital. The, there's a fish tank at Lurie that basically costs about as much as the building – you know, from her, from her last field placement, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, it's, we have these gleaming hospitals, even if you go into a, you know, pretty gritty public hospital in New York City, you know, that, that is a safety net institution, you compare what's resourced there, go down the street to the local health department, and just look at uh, everything about it, and compare the resources that are expended, let alone if you come to the University of Chicago, Northwestern, whatever. That's, that doesn't work. And now, and we're seeing one of the consequences now. Okay, I, I wanted to interrupt a minute ago just to go back to South Korea because uh, I happened to spend a couple of weeks there last year. Oh, wow. And it's a very impressive society. And I mean, I'm not sure where to even begin in comparing why the response here in the U.S. and the response in South Korea would be different since there's so many places. Have you got any idea how many hours per day these kids been studying? They spend a lot of time studying. Uh, Seoul looks like a city of, I, God only knows how many, 10 million, 12 million people. I don't know, it's sprawling all over the place. 
it's it, it looks I, I could not find a piece of trash on the street. Now, maybe I just didn't go to the right neighborhood, but I got around the city a lot. I didn't see I saw people teeming on top of each other and I heard nothing about crime. They must have crime, but it's not like what you might imagine it could be. Um, I got treated. I got a massage. I got the chiropractic treatment uh, because I had a, a malady. My uh, former graduate student, his professor there, took me to his doctor. And I saw a room full of elderly people who were getting free health care from whatever their health care system provides. And they were all in there getting their backs adjusted by the uh, chiropractor. And I felt a lot better when I got off the table than I did when I laid down. So, I mean, I don't know what makes that society tick, but you know, it's a long, long way from the continental, vastly diverse 330 million people, United States of America, where there's a gun under every other bed and uh, we got all kinds of stuff. They don't have an opioid epidemic going on in Korea either. I wonder why that is. But do you see what I'm getting at? I find those comparisons with respect a bit facile to say, how come we don't do it like the Koreans when there are so many things that make Korea... I'm, you know, well, but there's some very concrete. I agree with your general. Okay, there's point. some things we could have done that we didn't do. Yeah, especially because they were ahead of us, so we could have. You know, we had opportunities to learn from them, and you could say there's lots of things. You know, why is crime so different? There's a million reasons, but if they have a a technology that allows for rapid testing of people, uh, you know, there's some yeah. things that are, that are technologies that we can, uh, you know, that we can do. I, I grant that. And I'm not trying to say there are no lessons there. And I gather their experience with SARS and MERS uh, it stood them in good stead. Uh, and I don't know what their equipment stockpiles look like, but it looks like people got masks when they needed masks and they got tr- tested when they needed testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Um no, no, no. But I, I'm just saying it's such a different society in every respect. And I wonder what all of the social capital type resources that are being drawn on uh, in terms of conformity, you know, being able to get people to comply. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big deal, right? Because these are unenforceable orders. You just gave a speech about how it's good to to work from home. I happen to be in my office right now, but it's because it's the only place that I could actually carry out this work. But there's no one else here, so I don't believe I'm endangering anybody or being endangered by it, and I'm going to go home as soon as I can. Please don't get mad at me. But uh, I get America, it. getting something, getting uh, 98% conformity on something like that might be a, a heavy lift here in this country. It is, and we, and that social capital, we do have to think of ways. And that's why when I when I spoke before, I think this is a moment where we have to nurture that social capital and solidarity to get us through this, but also to help build a foundation for next time. And you I mean, really imagine the impact on our society if if we look back a year from now and we say, you know, there's a bunch of really tragic things that happened and there was a big economic dislocation, but you know, we really stuck together as people and with everything going on, how fucked up American politics is and everything else, we really stood together and helped each other. And we need to do that. We need to do that all the time. Think of how precious that would be as, as a positive that would come out of a trauma. You know, people came out of the Second World War with all of its traumas with a sense, you know, we really are one country. Yeah. Look at what we're capable of and look at how we can help each other. And uh, I do think that moments like this, that there is a redemptive possibility that that we need to that we need to do everything we can to make the most of. And, um, now, and now here's here's a 
possibility that I'd like to get you to uh, react to, which is wither identity politics in the age of the pandemic. Mm. Because this is kind of the flip side of what you just said. You just said, look, we're going to discover things about ourselves, resources that we have. We're going to discover the value in a certain kind of connectivity and in a certain kind of, I don't know, fellow feeling. Uh, is it a nationalist sentiment? That's one kind of question. We Americans pulling through this together. So that's a kind of double edged thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to close down the border to keep the thing out and things like that. But also, who are we? You know, and and uh, if somebody stands up right now and says black people are not getting their share of the whatever, okay, mm-hmm. and we demand that we demand, mm-hmm. okay, you're going to shut things down. Let's make sure that the racial incidence of the burden is mm-hmm. equally shared. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well that flies uh, in the current uh, climate when. Your group and my group should perhaps be taking second place to the common plight, the invisible enemy, and so forth and so on. Well, I just think what we do matters so much more than what we say. And, you know, the way uh, um, this is not going to be, whatever happens is not going to be because somebody wins an argument. It's because it's people are either going to make connections and help each other or they won't. And, you know, the biggest test of identity politics is are people going to get through this and get a sense, you know, I'm a low income person of color in Chicago. Uh, and when this thing happened, people were there for me. And whatever else I might think about American politics, whatever the reality, you know, that I, I concrete things happened where people came and helped me or concrete things didn't happen. And, uh, uh, and it's, uh, I just think that, if we think the society is too fractured, the only way we can really deal with that is by doing things that cross the boundaries that we're most worried are the fracture boundaries. But what I'm getting at is maybe if, and I hope that we do do those things and neighbors help neighbors and people feel themselves sharing a common fate mm-hmm. uh, and the exigencies, you know, the burdens born as in war, Mm-hmm. Whether something like that survives the time of the crisis and people discover that uh, their tribal loyalties perhaps were not as fundamentally significant to their identities or whatever as they had thought they were. They discover that the neighbor on the other side of town uh, who was, uh, you know, suffering through the same uh, trauma uh, is more or less like themselves. I mean, they speak with a different accent or they have a different coloration but they're basically like me something like that or maybe it's just that that person that person is really different from me but they will be there for me in my hour of need and the fact that we're different doesn't mean that we are opposed and you know it's like when there was when there are hate crimes in in my bottom of my family was in rochester new york there have been a bunch of hate crimes jewish and not 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 particularly in rochester but that have been salient to different communities in rochester and the jewish and muslim communities have really come together around some of those issues and it's not that they're unaware that they have a lot of differences yeah sure but but it becomes you know the fact is if someone's shooting muslims we're going to be there outside of your uh religious institution to help make sure you're safe and you know, that's, that's what you can do, uh, and, or not do. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, so I, 
So I, I don't think it's we're going to learn how different we are. It's we're going to learn whatever our differences are. Are we going to help each other when we are desperately needing it? Uh, you know, that's the that to me is the test. And, and that's a lot. That's a much more straightforward but difficult test than uh, uh, than can I somehow negotiate all the treacherous uh, uh, terrain of identity politics. It's just, uh, no, so that's, I don't know, but, but I I do worry that we're in a moment of, I mean, your, your, your anxieties about our polarized society, uh, what's going to happen to that polarization as we face this trauma. I, I share those anxieties, but I'm just saying, if we get out of them successfully, it will, it will be because we actually did stuff to help each other and showed that we are, we're not polarized when it comes to meeting basic human needs. Uh, well, I can tell you what we don't need. We don't need another incident on top of, you know, we don't need some kind of conflagration. We don't need, uh, you know, uh, civil unrest somewhere. We don't need uh, religious zealots uh, uh, deciding that they're going to make a stand against vaccination or, whatever. Yeah. Uh, we don't, we don't need second amendment people saying, uh, you know, I, I'm standing by my uh, autonomy and you're not, you know, no, uh, we don't need six or seven cops shot down at a demonstration somewhere by somebody who's pissed off at police or whatever. We certainly don't need Laquan McDonald or some kind of incident like that where white police officers execute an African-American who's, who's unarmed in the middle of his Etc. We need no, none that's of those very, things. Imagine, imagine that is, now that is, you know, uh, David McDonald has just run off with a bunch of uh, Clorox wipes and uh, paper products and gets oh, into yeah. it and is hurt. You know that you could, you can imagine, you know, some target someplace. You could imagine yeah. a very ugly incident. Uh, that's the kind of Katrina scenario all over again, right? Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly that. And suppose there are some shortages of uh, life-saving necessities, and suppose people are breaking in places or doing other uh, illegal activities in order to try to get what they need in order for their kids to survive. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? Uh, God, that's that's a very bleak. Very well, bleak I'm sure there's a lot of very liberal people who don't believe in the Second Amendment who start to think, you know, I wouldn't mind having a gun in my house uh, for the next month. Uh, if things got bad like that, well, I don't know about you. The thought has occurred to me. I haven't acted on it. The thought, the thought has occurred to me that if we were to go over some kind of line and people would walk up the hill from the other side of the river here in Providence, Rhode Island, to the nice Tony community that I lived in, why not be able to persuade them to just go on down to the next house, not this house, go to the next house? It's a very human. You know? uh, it's a very understandable uh, reaction uh, or anxiety. And maybe that's maybe that's one of the ways that we could be sympathetic. I get that people, uh, you know, the, sec- the people that people that want to have a gun for protection, you know, that that is not a that's not an evil thought. Uh, you know, what you do with that and 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 so on is another question, but that's not an evil thought. And now here's something else I'm worried about. We're we're in these shutdown regimes, and I guess we can terminate our conversation. At some point, but but we're in these shutdown regimes, and they can't last forever. They, they, I mean, I think that's just clear. They won't last forever. People won't comply forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we know it's going to unravel at some point. And you want to get, you don't want the credibility of officialdom to be undermined by having the unravel take place before officialdom backs off. 
So the backing off somehow has to happen before the capacity of people to sustain the thing just completely gives way. Yeah. You think that's right? There's something to it, but I think the capacity of people to sustain the thing is endogenous, though, to public policy. You know, if you're sitting at home and we're sending people checks, we're helping them make sure their bills are paid. Okay, sure. We're doing X, Y, Z that, and we're talking. So, so that they're the first, the first line of defense is make it, make it sustainable for people to be at home and, you know, have Tony Fauci telling people what's going on and explaining, um, Okay, here's what you should be doing. Here's what we think is happening in a credible, non-hysterical way. Uh, have social okay. insurance, et cetera. And I just want you to know your job is safe when this is over. Here's what we're doing to make sure that you, we're going to make sure that we're going to help you. That well, the, re- help. Yeah. the regime should be well managed, but I also think there needs to be an exit strategy somehow. I wonder if people are thinking about that. Yeah, well, people are thinking about it, um, but. Whether whether that <laughs> whether those thoughts are are adding up to a to a uh, highly effective strategy is another question. Part of it is what's happening. You can imagine that it's becoming really really stressful for people to be at home at the same time that we are seeing very tangible signs of people suffering very serious consequences of COVID nineteen. That's a different conversation from we're sitting at home. This is becoming unbearable. We're worried that COVID-19 is going to start to spike, but it's not a salient reality yet. And I think that first, that second one is going to be harder to sustain, even if epidemiologically is just as valuable. I think if, if people start seeing, you know, you turn on the TV and you see overrun medical institutions and stuff, people are saying you got to stay at home. A lot of Americans are going to be thinking, well, this stinks, but I see why we're doing it. Yeah. If I'm not seeing anything in the environment and they keep telling me that, it's, people are going to start to lose their patience. Uh, and, and, uh, and there's going to be a sort of phony war period, to use an analogy, uh, that is going to be where we really need leadership to say, you're not seeing yet either the benefit or the cost of what we're doing in terms of the epidemic, but you got to stay at home anyway because we're buying ourselves some time. Well, there's certain basic fundamentals, right? There are the uh, there's the number of cases, there's the mortality rate, there, there's the number of new cases, a leveling off. I mean, I suppose if it were statistically undeniable that there had been some kind of leveling off, you know, the number of cases doubling every two weeks, every four weeks, every six weeks, this is indication that as we get into that slower growth regime, we can start. But, but uh, this is a fascinating issue to me because it's not at all clear, even with objective data, how the call gets made because there's no, Exact point, you know, object, you know, you pass this line, the number of new cases is below X, then we're out. Somebody is going to talk us out by following the cases and giving a narrative. And a question I have is whether that's a completely uh, expertise dependent process or whether there isn't a certain kind of public framing that the press, as well as the political spokespersons, participate in creating and and whether indeed there shouldn't be coordination to some degree between the different organs. I mean, I I know this is a very dicey thing to be saying to try to get the narrative in the service of what's the wisest course of action for which there is no purely objective 
determine it. Well, there's a couple, you've said a couple of things there. One is it's a very complicated optimal stopping problem where we don't really understand what the underlying dynamic stochastic system is that we're stopping in. And that's just inherently going to be a huge challenge. There is also the sort of communication challenge. I do think, by the way, my just my belief in gatekeeping institutions is much greater than it was ten years ago. I remember. Wow. I mean, I mean, my belief that we need them is much greater than mm-hmm. ten years ago. I, when I look at the Democratic and Republican primaries, I am now, I have now become a believer that that party elites, which is elected officials, should be able to just kick people out of the presidential primaries, like Tom Steyer, Tulsi Gubbard, people like that, that there should be a process by which someone calls them up and says, you know, we uh, two-thirds of Democratic elected officials have just said, you're not com- you're not going to be on our debate stage. You're not going to well, do Okay, I now. got Tom Steyer, a billionaire, trying to buy his land. What's wrong with Tulsi Gabbard? And oh, not just, that I'm a fan, I just want to know. Just too much of a crackpot that okay. just... That just uh, or you, you Marianne Williamson. Yeah, you challenge the president's birth certificate. You're not on the Republican uh, primary okay. ballot. And uh, but I think and and also in the media, the fact that we no longer have uh, a common set of media inputs that everyone is watching. You know, the, the loss of Walter Cronkite for all the limitations yeah. in that old model. In 1968, you could have had Walter Cronkite go on TV interviewing Tony Fauci, and 200 million Americans would be watching yeah. as Fauci walks Walter Cronkite through the issue, and there would be a common uh, – we would all have a common database. And, uh, you know, now, uh, you know, what do you do in the world of Fox TV and, and et cetera? Uh, you have, you know, Sean Hannity is going to say whatever Sean Hannity thinks is good for Sean Hannity. And, uh, uh, and Rachel Maddow, she's the humanitarian who's going to speak on behalf of well, the, I don't think those yeah. are, I agree that there's a polarization. She, she is closer to, uh, certainly in public health, I would, she, she's closer to it. But, but that is a problem, you know, that just, yeah. that just unpalatable things will not be tolerated or listened to if it doesn't come from, uh, the right messenger. And uh, uh, yeah, you could certainly imagine a case where, where say MSNBC gets very invested in a particular strategy and then that just turns out not to be effective. And it's very hard for their ecosystem to move off of that. And their viewers are not open to other sources of information. Uh, and you could, I, so I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the Sean Hannity problem. It'd be a problem. It occurs to me here. We might be fooling ourselves here with all this kumbaya happy talk that a presidential election is coming, uh, that the incumbent has not been known for restraint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't blame the Democrats if they decided not to bring a knife to a gunfight this time around. Uh, some people say Bernie Sanders should have brought his gun uh, to the Joe Biden thing and he decided to not do it. But I don't think anybody's going to be that quote kind, close quote toward President Trump. Neither is yeah. President Trump going to be restrained and so it may be that all of our highfalutin, well-meaning uh, mm-hmm. call to people to come together and whatnot is wasting our breath because willy-nilly we're going to descend into the pit. Well, I think that's too pessimistic. I think that I, I, so. do, I do agree that the Democrats, the Democrats do have to be very effective and partisan in defeating President Trump. They can do that in a way that is not pushing us into the pit. Uh, you know, the, 
That depends the, on how he reacts, doesn't it? Uh, that is true. We can't and how re- they react to his react, you know, and, and where this thing ultimately gets. But I mean, to. I, I think I think there's ways that. By the way, the problem is not Donald Trump is one of the problems. The deeper problem is uh, is is the conventional politicians who felt they could work with him and support him, and that's that's actually what bothers me more in some way. He's both. Well, that's over, though. Person. That's that's over. With Mitch McConnell, you think that's over? No. What I mean is the argument is over, and they're all on Trump's team now. Yeah. 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 That's what I mean. I mean, you can lament it all you want oh. to, but it's a it's a fait accompli. And I, yeah. I, and I do think Democrats just have to understand that, you know, this is who we're dealing with. But um, uh, but I think you can I think you can do that without um, uh, while still being uh, a positive public health force in an emergency. And I think it would be, uh, you know, and especially Biden, I think temperamentally, you know, he's not a guy who's going to burn the house down. Uh, you know, that's just not who he is. And that's one of the reasons why Democrats, we could have a whole other show about how there was this grassroots decision, essentially, among partisan Democrats. We want, we want a moderate, we want someone who is, we, we don't want a revolution right now. We don't want this election to be a referendum on democratic socialism. And, uh, and you um, think that was the right call? I definitely think that was the right call. Uh, and, by the way, I should say the day before Buttigieg and Klobuchar uh, dropped out and endorsed Biden, I, I, it's basically me. I tweeted the day before that all the other moderates should drop out and endorse Biden, and then they did. <laughs> so you're welcome. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, my Elizabeth I, Warren didn't get the endorsement part of that tweet. Uh, I, I had a more complicated. My super PAC's been talking to Warren. It's been a little. It's a. We have a more complicated strategy that we want her to follow and i i'm not really i can't really discuss that on this uh in, in this so uh, in this venue okay harold well we'll call you back a little bit later in the election cycle and see if you're willing to fess up we'll see yeah actually i i have to by the way send me kotlikoff's number when we're done here because i got some you know uh, <laughs> but uh they're um anyway um uh it was great to talk to you glenn it was my pleasure, Harold, Harold Pollock, Helen Ross Professor, School of Social Service Administration, University of Chicago, here at the Glenn Show. I'm at Brown University. I don't think I mentioned that, but yeah. Take care, Harold. Uh, it was fun to talk to you. It's been too long. We'll have to do it again. Stay safe, Glenn.